0: Love one another, writes St. Paul. The Ten Commandments, he explains, forbidding murder, theft, adultery, etc. are all variations on that theme. He reasons, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What is love? Like faith, love is a blend of belief and desire, and action. I love you when I believe that your good is is as important as my own, when I desire it for you, and when I lift a hand to make it real. Head, heart, and hand are all engaged. Hurricane relief is love. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was love. Fidelity in marriage is. Fifty years ago this week on the front steps of this church, I first met my future bride. Forty years ago this fall, two blocks east of here on Louisiana Street, I asked her to marry me. Christian marriage is a palette of natural loves, affirmed, enhanced, and disciplined by spiritual commitment. It starts with physical and emotional attractions whose fulfillment is among the very happiest experiences that we can have as human beings, and within a Christ-like give and take, it guards and nurtures them for life. Twenty years ago, when I proposed to the General Convention that our church should bless same-sex unions, I had in mind my own experience in marriage. I was guided by belief that my gay neighbor's happiness was just as important as my own. I wanted to have them to have what I enjoyed. If God gives the church authority to loose or bind, as we read in Matthew that he does, with respect to sexual morality, some loosening was called for. This isn't a sermon about that, but I thought I'd mention it. Because we have a big wedding coming up here, that with all my head, my heart, and my dancing feet I'm looking forward to, the couple is dear to you and me. Do you believe that our behavior matters? We have feelings that would give us that impression. Compassion, guilt, conscience, disapproval. Something inside us makes us want to help the victims of a hurricane, and if we fail to lift a hand, we may feel ashamed about it. If our neighbor turns his back, we may scorn him. Brother Osteen got a dose of that. We call these moral sentiments. Do you believe that these natural moral feelings point to real responsibilities? We've heard it's only wrong if you get caught. If we believe that compassion, conscience, guilt, and disapproval point to real responsibilities, then getting caught has nothing whatsoever to do with right and wrong. Here, we do believe that. The commandment to love is invisible, but real as a brick wall. This belief runs from one end of the Bible to the other and through all our prayers. My debate friend, Leah Labresco, gave up her atheism and found faith in the strength of her belief that moral truth is discovered rather than invented. Football, Harry Potter, and the U.S. Constitution were invented. The moons of Jupiter and the Pythagorean theorem were discovered. Moral responsibilities, she said, are like moons and theorems, even when invisible. They're real. Their invisibility is certainly a challenge to us. Abraham Lincoln spoke to that. He said, Certainly there is no contending against the will of God, but there is still some difficulty in ascertaining applying it to particular cases. That difficulty makes doing the right thing one part like math and science and three parts like art politics and football. Jesus gives us an example on this morning's gospel. The law of love was his discovery, not Paul's. And again and again, Jesus tells us that we must love our neighbors as ourselves. With Christian faith, this responsibility is given. But now I face a problem because my neighbor is doing something wrong to me. Making matters worse, my neighbor is a member of my church. I'm speaking hypothetically. (laughs) If you are new to church, you may not know, but will quickly find out that church people doing wrong is as much a fact of life as church people getting sick. Moral fevers, colds, and headaches are just part of church life day to day. As Augustine put it, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. As you will eventually discover, clergy are not exempt from this. Just as cardiologists sometimes have heart attacks, priests sometimes have moral meltdowns. In our constitution and laws governing the Episcopal Church, we have an entire section, Title IV, that spells out what to do when clergy get in trouble. It's long. Title IV is a modern invention. Jesus had to make a procedure up from scratch, like a backyard quarterback kneeling in the huddle and running his finger through the dirt, drawing up a play. It would have been good to have him yesterday. (laughs) His design is a triple option. If Smith is misbehaving, Jones should tell her face-to-face. If that goes nowhere, try bringing in Dawson, whom Smith Smith respects. If that doesn't work, take the problem to the whole church. The goal of this process isn't retribution. Retribution is the moral principle that crime should be punished and punishment should fit the crimes. But for Jesus, discipline is a means, not an end. Amendment of life is the goal. I love that phrase. That we can amend our lives like we can amend the Constitution. We also notice that in Jesus' plan, patience has a limit. If plan A, plan B, and plan C don't work, he says, then enough is enough. In that case, the church should separate the offender from itself. If the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We call that excommunication. Excommunication. And in the Episcopal Church, we have a procedure for limited excommunication, and it is spelled out on page 409 of the Book of Common Prayer. It's the priest's responsibility. In the 35 years that I've been a priest, I've never done it. I guess that makes me a softy. Jesus' plan is deliberately ironic. Let the offender be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, he says. The Gospel of Matthew is named after a tax collector. Jesus risked his moral reputation by inviting tax collectors to dinner. And as for Gentiles, that means us. Throwing someone in the pool of tax collectors and Gentiles does not expel them from the sphere of God's redemption. Now it could be that you're wondering where is that message of redemption in our Old Testament reading from the book of Exodus. If you are, congratulations for paying attention. And yes, this is a challenge this is challenging material for interpretation. In Exodus the Lord gives Moses and Aaron instructions for keeping the Passover feast. These instructions include cooking do's and don'ts and how quickly to eat and what to wear because we read It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt for human beings and animals. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Hearing such talk as that, our moral sentiments may protest. It is fair enough, maybe, that God would destroy Pharaoh's army as the army as it pushes Israel into the Red Sea. We fought back at Dunkirk, too. But killing firstborn Egyptian children would now, if a ruler did it, be thought to be a war crime. Sounds more like Cersei Lannister than God. You don't know Cersei Lannister, think Genghis Khan. Also, killing firstborns seems to contradict the sixth commandment, thou shalt do no murder. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So God, apparently, is doing something God forbids, which is a contradiction. All this gives the Christian interpreter a lot to think about. Reading the Bible, it is pretty important to know something of the history of its faithful interpretation. We should all know, as Dr. Snapp reminded us last week, that Martin Luther compared the Bible to the manger where we find the Christ child. And like the manger, the Bible, Luther said, contains some passages of straw. It was Luther who also said that Christ is the king of scripture, which means that everything in the scripture that needs to be assessed needs to be assessed in light of Christ and his law of love. So we could decide that this is a passage of straw overruled by Christ. Even older than Luther, I've also told you about St. Gregory of Nyssa, whose teaching shaped the Nicene Creed. Gregory advised that when a literal reading of a piece of scripture would defy logic, good morals, or good faith, then we should use our imagination to explore alternative interpretations. And the Bible itself shows us how to do this. The Last Supper, our Eucharist, is a rich biblical reinterpretation of the Passover as a foreshadowing of Christ. Allegorically, Christ is the sacrificial lamb. Baptism extends the metaphor, as Christ dies and rises, so we die to sin and rise to better life. So what gets killed on that interpretation? Our former life's beliefs, desires, and actions, the psychological and spiritual progeny of Pharaoh, so to speak. In Romans, Paul names a nursery full of them, debauchery, licentiousness, quarreling, and jealousy. Drunkenness is also mentioned. These children die hard. That's why priests and lay folks sometimes have moral meltdowns. You've heard me quote Karl Barth on this point. In Bart's church, it was customary to describe baptism as drowning the old Adam, which was supposed to be the end of jealousy and quarreling, along with getting drunk. Bart said the problem is, old Adam can swim. America can appreciate the problem. With the law of 1964, the civil rights movement drowned the old belief in white supremacy, but here it is trying to make a comeback. In 1791, the Bill of Rights drowned the idea that if I don't approve of what someone else is saying, I should shut him down, shut him up, or shout him down. And now on campuses, that idea is back in force. In secular spheres, too, old Adam is resilient. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That is a rich allegorical interpretation. Paul was applying it to the same problem that Jesus faced in Matthew's gospel there was bad behavior in his congregation. Paul was concerned that some Lannister like bad apples in the church at Corinth might spoil the bunch. And his advice to the leaders of the church was to throw out the bad apples quickly before the rot spread. Jesus' approach in our reading was more measured. And elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus shows even more patience, advising that the best thing to do is to let the wheat and tares, the good behaviors and the bad, grow up together until God does the sorting in the end because in the attempt to eliminate the bad, we may do some damage to the good. So within the New Testament, we find various approaches to Christian discipline. 2,000 years later, we still scratch our heads and try to get it right. No solution's perfect. We live, we learn, we make mistakes, we try again. Our Episcopal Church, for the most part, is guided by the wheat and tares philosophy. Keep everybody in and leave the final sorting up to God. As a priest, that suits me. It makes me your pastor rather than your judge. And I like that. I'm a softie, like I said.